This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silverman. And with me today is Professor Lily Pearl Balafay. Professor Balafay is an associate professor in the Latin American and Latino Studies Department of UC Santa Cruz. And today we'll be discussing her book, Argentina in the Global Middle East, which was published in 2020 by Stanford University Press. Before we get into the details of the book, I'd like to ask a little bit about you, Professor, um, about yourself, your background, and what brought you to this topic of Argentina and its connections with the global Middle East. Thanks so much for having me, Ruben. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. I, um, I'm trained as a historian, and I, uh, I came to that path via having studied Latin American studies as an undergraduate. And there was nothing Middle East studies related in my formation and my undergraduate studies or anything prior to coming to graduate school, but I had become interested in the era of mass migration to Argentina. Uh, I have family roots in Argentina. My father was born there. I had been traveling back there since I was a kid to visit family. And so I had this natural connection to the place and was very interested in the, the, you know, sort of in the abstract interest in this era of mass migration and how it was formative for the country. And by the time I got to graduate school at University of California, Davis, I realized that I wanted to make a dissertation project out of this and that I wanted to focus on a particular group within this history of mass migration that, that shaped the country. And as I was beginning graduate school, I was thinking really critically about what kind of experiences did I want to have while I was getting my PhD. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to study a new language. I wanted to have that experience as part of my graduate degree. And I was thinking about what are the different groups that, um, you know, with, with different national origins, different geographic ties that make up this important page in Argentina's history And I wanted to study a group that had less bibliography, historiography published about it. 
And so that's really how I landed was realizing, well, I think it would be really interesting to study Arabic. And there's hardly anything written um, in comparison to the bulk of scholarship published about groups like Spaniards and Italians in Argentine migration history. And I had lived in Argentina, in Mendoza, um, when I was an undergraduate in uh, 2004, 2005. And I had remembered meeting people who told me about how they could trace their roots back to Lebanon or Syria. And that's that was a memory that just, you know, wasn't a formative memory or anything, but it had stuck with me. I had found it interesting at the time because I, I didn't know anything about Argentina's ties to that part of the world vis-a-vis migration. And so that really that really stuck with me. And so I decided to focus on that as the as the group, as the as the case study, if you will. And as I got deeper into the project, and this is spans while I was in graduate school and also beyond that when I was working as a postdoctoral fellow at North Carolina State University, and then beyond that. Um, in in the in the faculty positions I've held, I began really becoming influenced by what are the tools of of thinking geographically and using maps and uh, thinking spatially and how can that be brought to this project? And so I sort of mutated out of just the more typical critical archival methods that I was using and bringing to the project that had come very naturally out of my training as a historian at UC Davis and started applying some of these other approaches um, of, you know, making maps and, and thinking geographically and how, how that could really bring, bring some of the ideas that I had fleshed them out even further. And so by, by now I, I still identify as a historian, but I, I tend to say I was trained as a historian and I, I do a lot of other things now in my research. Hmm. Well, so that's interesting because you do use a lot of very interesting maps uh, of railroads, of um, charitable giving, things like this throughout the book. So as we're talking, it would be nice if you could bring up some of those. Um, but first, perhaps you can give a little bit of um, context and background, because much of the book focuses on particular Arab Argentine people, communities, institutions. But maybe we could think first about some of the elites you talk about who shaped early Argentina and how they envisioned its relationship to the Middle East and of Middle Easterners, Asians, Orientals, however they may talk about it, to Argentina as a start. For sure. I like to to say that Argentina, you know, while it didn't have a influx of immigrants coming from the Arabic speaking Eastern Mediterranean, coming from the Middle East until the late 19th and then really the beginning of the 20th century, the Middle East existed in Argentina prior to that, long prior and more so in the imagination of various people who were formative in the intellectual and political projects around nation building in Argentina. And a couple of the individuals that I look at are um, Alberdi and Sarmiento, who are both these, you know, prolific um, political intellectual voices of the, of Argentina's 19th century. And Sarmiento in particular, Domingo Faustino Sarmiento, he was a statesman, he was an intellectual uh, important thinker in terms of 
uh, the generation of 1837. And he had actually traveled to, well, he had traveled all over the world, but he had traveled in North Africa and had had encounters with Bedouin tribes, and he had sort of meditated on this idea of an Eastern other. He had even dressed up and um, in a sort of masquerade uh, as a, a Bedouin camel rider, and upon returning to Argentina, had asked his sister to paint a portrait of him dressed up riding a camel, which um, which I did not include in my book, but which is a really interesting image to to find through through Google. You can just <laughs> Google Sarmiento uh, portrait camel, and uh, it's <laughs> he's there perched atop a camel. His sister, the lore is that his sister had never seen a camel before, and so the proportions are completely out of whack, and the camel is the size of like a a small donkey. Um, <laughs> so, um, so this is, this is all kind of, you know, a humorous and, and backwards way of kind of getting into this larger conversation, which was that the Middle East and, you know, the, the East as an abstract, this was something that loomed in the imagination of thinkers like Sarmiento long before people actually started arriving from that general vicinity of the world. And I say general vicinity because there was not uh, a mass arrival of folks from Algeria per se, which is where Sarmiento had been traveling and sort of um, formed some of the the ideas that he had about uh, Bedouins and Eastern others and the Orient, if you will. Um, but he, uh, he and many other thinkers maintained this idea around what kind of immigrants were ideal and who was going to be the population of of newcomers that was going to positively shape the nation that was going to abate the state of barbarism that they interpreted as the, the current state of affairs in Argentina in the 19th century. Um, this had a lot to do with uh, what they what they considered to be the barbarous state of Argentina's indigenous populations. It had a lot to do with what they considered to be quote um, empty territory that was a threat to the project of national territorial consolidation. Um, And I say perceived as empty territory, much of the territory that they perceived as empty territory was in fact inhabited by indigenous groups and had been for quite some time. But basically the vision that they formed about who would be the kind of panacea to the, the woes of this barbarous place would be this idealized abstract European immigrant. And by that, if you read into the, the, the documents and the treatises that they that they penned about immigration in Argentina, it was very clear that they meant a Northern European immigrant who would be doing a specific kind of work. And that this, this ran in counter to what they perceived as the nature of immigrants from other parts of the world, including the Middle East. And so in in my in my early on in the book, I sort of look at the way that that immigrants from the Middle East were arriving to this country, traveling through space in this country, starting businesses, building networks, all against a backdrop of a place that for a long time had envisioned them as outside of, you know, whose intellectuals had envisioned them as outside of 
a modernizing project and that this is this is sort of what they were the situation that they were encountering upon upon landing well so this does bring us to the aspect you talk of settlement and railroads, for example. So you're saying in the book that as people from places like Syria and Lebanon moved to Argentina, they were settling along the railroad lines in many cases. So perhaps you can talk a bit about how the settlement and movement were connected with the rail lines. And perhaps some of your work with with mapping might come in here, I think. Yes, I would love to talk about that because it also gives me a chance to talk a little bit about what role movement played for me in the research process. Um, When I was doing the bulk of the earlier phases of research for this project, I myself was also moving all around the country. I had originally actually envisioned this project as being one that would be comparative, thinking about Argentina and Brazil, and that I um, I would look at Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo as major immigration hubs uh, for uh, people from the Arabic-speaking Eastern Mediterranean. And I did some preliminary research trips to Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo and was kind of thinking along those lines. But as a graduate student, I was applying for funding from, as you can imagine, everywhere that one can apply for funding from. And I ended up getting a Fulbright-Hayes grant to do a year of dissertation research. And the stipulations of that grant are that you remain in one country. Uh, And when I had been applying for that grant, one of the sort of uh, tips that was included in the, the grant proposal, you know, guidelines for that year was that they were particularly looking for grant proposals related to Argentina that did not solely concern historical processes unfolding in Buenos Aires, that they were interested in projects that would involve the provinces or the interior as some, as you know, it's famously people envision this juxtaposition historically between the interior, the interior, the provinces and the metropolis of Buenos Aires. Um, And so just as a thought experiment for that grant proposal, I started thinking about, well, how, how could I, how could I think about proposing a project that would weave together histories of the interior, histories of the provinces, and think of them in ways that are connected with Buenos Aires rather than in juxtaposition? And so through that grant proposal writing process and then getting the grant and landing in Argentina to do that year of research, it, you know, it was honestly that twist of funding fate that really you know, set me on the path of thinking about geography and space and interconnection and mobility in Argentina, rather than thinking comparatively and transnationally, um, and as I had been previously thinking. So it just goes to show, you know, it's always worth doing the thought experiment of that grant proposal <laughs> that you think is maybe a long shot or a reach, because it can end up shifting it can end up shifting the gears of your thinking in fundamental ways as it did for myself. And when I was doing research there, I did a lot of moving around from province to province, um, long distance bus rides, you know, hopping on a bus in Buenos Aires and taking it for hours and hours and hours, you know, 10, 12, 14, 17 hours to, to get to a, a far flung province. So that's all to say that I spent a lot of time in transit myself, staring out the window just looking at the landscape going by and thinking, thinking about the role of movement. And all of these bus lines that I was taking, we were traveling on um, for the, you know, for a majority of it, major 
connective highways and infrastructure that that link up the provinces today. But I had I was well aware that this was not how people would have been traveling during the time period that I was researching, in which people would have been primarily traveling by rail. Now the rail um, is almost non-existent in terms of passenger rail in Argentina. It has um, been almost entirely decommissioned, going all the way back to uh, the mid twentieth century. But I started to think about how as I was finding more and more evidence of these populations of, um, of folks who had come from the Arabic speaking Eastern Mediterranean and built communities and established businesses and launched institutions, uh, that, that this was happening all over the country. And I was trying to kind of work out, uh, how did people get to these places? Like how, how, um, how did they decide on, um, this, you know, this, what might seem random, in sort of an ahistorical um, cursory survey of the demographic spread of, of these populations all over the country. But when I started thinking about rail travel and the way that people got there, I started realizing that where people settled was oftentimes very interrelated with how the rail line network was distributed across the country. And so that's really where some of my mapping came in, I, um, I remember going to a printer, a print shop in Davis, California, when I was back from all of my research. And, and I had this, this image, this digitized image of a historical rail map in Argentina. And I'm a very visual, like tactile person. I remember asking them, how big can you print this map out? Because I, I literally want to stick pins into it. Um, to get a better understanding of, of where people were and how they were in relation to um, the rail lines. And I started, um, I started doing that and immediately saw this correlation between uh, hubs of business and institutional life and religious institutions um, clustered around rail junctions and also the end of rail lines. And so that led me to do a deeper dive into thinking about what was the role of rail infrastructure in Argentina in the late 19th and early 20th century? And how did that project of expanding infrastructure and connecting national space um, overlap and, and, and impact the way that this national immigration project that was also unfolding at the same time, like how were those two projects interrelated? Because they're, they're two things that are sort of standard things to reference when we're talking about this formative period of the late 19th into the 20th century in Argentina of like nation building. It's the infrastructural projects and then the demographic projects of mass migration policy. And they weren't weren't really talked about in conjunction with each other at length in the way that I was interested in thinking about them. So, So that's really where I started to think about that. And as I um, got deeper into it, I... Um, I started experimenting with different data visualization programs uh, like Carto and Tableau to to get a better sense of of where people were and where their projects were unfolding in the way that it actually created what I saw as this really compelling argument for a connectivity of geographic space in Argentina that ran really counter to this traditional narrative of it being Buenos Aires y el interior. 
And really it was, you know, these are not in counterpoint, these are not in juxtaposition to one another, but this is a, a this circulating map of interconnectedness and mobility that tells a more unified story of the history of Argentina and Argentine space than what we've been previously able to do. And how interesting is it that the, the, the entry point for telling that more unified story is this group, which going back to those 19th century intellectuals was previously thought of as, you know, outside of Argentine history or the antithesis of Argentine um, as like being this Eastern other. But here we are in the 21st century looking backwards and realizing, oh, this group is actually the perfect, um, the perfect entry point, the perfect thought experiment for thinking about how to think about Argentina in a, in a more unified way. Hmm. And if I can ask you a, a follow-up about this, uh, when these uh, Arab Argentines, when, when people are getting to these ju- uh, ju- towns at junctions, settling down, what sort of uh, businesses are they doing in these locations? So that's a great question. And it's a, and it's a question that, you know, I'll answer about Argentina, but this really is a pattern that we see throughout the hemisphere, throughout the Americas, um, was that lots of people came and set up um, like uh, small businesses related to selling dry goods and notions, little general store type of operations. Um, Many folks uh, worked their way up to that by first selling door-to-door peddling. And uh, while this is absolutely not everyone who came, we see in uh, a, a huge amount of folks kind of going this pathway of selling um, small goods, notions, dry goods, general store um, supplies, particularly, um, especially when we start getting into these more rural spaces, frontier spaces, where they served a really important role. And we can see why it makes sense if we're starting now thinking infrastructurally about you know, good business models at the end of a railroad line or good business models at a rail junction. Like what do people need? What kind of supplies do they need? And from there, a lot of folks, um, you know, not everyone by any means, but we see many cases in which folks worked their way from those kinds of small, smaller operations to owning multiple of those operations. Uh, In the case of Argentina, I, I found several examples where folks would buy up little dry goods, businesses, storefronts, general stores um, at several locations, like along a rail line and would presumably move between them to manage those businesses. So kind of mobility at a micro uh, provincial scale became really clear as an important aspect of people's lived experience. Um, And then sometimes people would start selling uh, por mayor. So like bulk distributing, um, and, uh, and this, this was not everyone. There were also people who came who were, um, you know, from intellectual backgrounds who came and uh, established robust careers working in the Arab Argentine press, for example, uh, literary careers, artistic careers. Um, but, but there was this huge amount of folks who followed this career path that had to do with commerce and, um, and just statistically speaking, I, I could see the prevalence of that particular career path when I started working with a particular set of archival documents that became very central in this project of mapping and understanding demographic distribution. 
And these were a set of, of archival documents that were these business directories or guías de comercio. And they were, I like to describe it essentially like a, a yellow pages, except that, especially with my students, like more and more uh, with each generation, saying that something is like the yellow pages just dates me and people <laughs> less and less know what I'm talking about. But um, but they were these directories that would contain people's names, where they were located, what kind of business they held, and oftentimes would contain like coordinates or instructions for how to reach that you know, business from, from the rail line, like what branch of the rail system one needed to take to be able to get to the place where they were. And these were uh, oftentimes uh, guides, uh, like business guides that were compiled and, and printed by printing houses in major cities like Buenos Aires and Cordoba in the middle of the country. But they would contain information about people all over the country. And so when I started finding these guides, which were published at intervals, I began this project when I was a postdoctoral fellow. So after I had finished the dissertation, I began this project of crunching all of the numbers from these guides to just try to get a better handle on where, where, what, where were people? What were they doing? Because I couldn't go to every single tiny town, you know. 17 hour bus rides all the time, notwithstanding, I still was nowhere close from an on the ground research perspective to saying, okay, well, I'm just going to visit every town where people were. That's impossible. They were everywhere. And so I thought, well, if I could get a bird's eye view of where people were, that would be helpful in this project. And so there was, by the time I got through crunching the, crunching the numbers and making massive spreadsheets, thousands and thousands and thousands of cells long, I had somewhere upwards of about 12,000 data points of the, over the course of um, about 1907 to the mid 20th century, which were the span of guides that I was looking at. And from there, I started making some some rudimentary, more crude maps to, to show me where, where people were. And that, um, and that sort of really opened my eyes to thinking, yes, I am on the right track thinking about the connectivity of space. Um, across the provinces and with Buenos Aires and how it was really these regional networks that undergirded the transnational public sphere and these transnational relationships that that are also really important to examine in the context of this of this migrant population um, but that we we sort of sometimes overlook when we're thinking about these transnational um, political connections or artistic uh, movements, et cetera, which, which I also talk about in the book. You know, I talk about those dramatic, uh, you know, cross-oceanic ties and the movement of people and things and ideas across long distances like that. But what I started to really see through this mapping and working with these archival sources with these, these directories was that there was all of this movement happening at a smaller scale um, distance-wise but of a huge scale volume wise, people were just on the move all the time for lots of different reasons. And it was that movement and that mobility that forged connections that were integral to like major institutional projects happening in Buenos Aires or forms of transnational connection that were happening between Argentina and um, Syria and Lebanon and surrounding region. Well, 
I do want to ask you then about the, the cultural aspect that you mentioned, because I, that, that was a part that really interested me in the book. I mean, you talk about the way that movement through this geography and the larger global Middle East was really an essential aspect of the art and the culture of the diaspora. So maybe you could talk about some examples that stood out to you that illustrate this movement that you're talking about these flows that you're talking about, uh, whichever ones come to mind or that you think are particularly evocative, I'd love to hear about. Sure. I'll talk to you about the the case of Oriente Film, which was a group of individuals whose story I came across pretty early on in my archival research. And I, I really feel like that their, their story was an entry point to me for thinking about some of these larger questions. So when I was doing some early research at the Biblioteca Nacional in Buenos Aires, I came across these newspaper articles from the late 1920s about a group of cinematographers who were calling themselves the Oriente Film Crew. And I was fascinated by their story, particularly because if you remember, early on in my research, I was thinking about doing a project that looked at Argentina and Brazil. And so I was particularly interested in the story of this film crew because they were, at the time of the articles that I was reading in that newspaper in the late 1920s, they were traveling to Brazil, um, to Sao Paulo and several other locations from Buenos Aires to film some documentary films about their community, their broader Latin American, Syrian, Lebanese community. They were going to different sites of importance. They were going to visit prominent community members. They were going and uh, filming in uh, textile factories owned by uh, prominent members of the the community in in Sao Paulo and interviewing them. And they were filming landscapes of Brazil and then bringing these films back to Argentina and doing public showings of them and saying, look, look at these, um, look at these uh, communities uh, that are that are in Brazil who are doing these important projects and and traveling around Argentina, uh, giving giving showings of these of these documentary films that they were producing, whilst also filming in Argentina and beyond as their tour lengthened and began to include other countries like Chile and elsewhere um, in their in their in their circuit. And so I, I first started reading about them and then and then looking for other clues as to their existence, including looking to see if there was any surviving copies of that documentary film. And I never found any. Spoiler alert. <laughs> Still never seen these films. It was extremely disappointing. But it was through um, working with those sources that I initially became connected with some of my my biggest supporters, my biggest allies in my research project uh, in terms of folks that I met on the ground in Argentina while I was working on it. And those are folks who actually appear in my book in a later chapter, um, my, my good friends and colleagues um, who work with this Latin American Arab Film Festival or Cine Fertil Latin Arab film festival that's been going on for more than 10 years now. And they were really interested in what I was researching because they thought, well, how interesting that, um, that you're working on this historical case study of, of folks from 
Syria and Lebanon who are traveling around Argentina and uh, trying to build cultural bridges between Latin America and the Middle East, sort of essentially, if we if we look at the the basic aims of what they were doing. And, and they really saw a reflection of some of the things that they were doing in their own projects to create film festivals in the 21st century that would bring together through processes of co-production and, and exchange um, artists from the Middle East and from Latin America in their Latin Arab film festivals. And so my colleagues um, uh, really helped me to, to think through what, what were sort of the larger implications of this kind of project that, that, the, that the Oriente film crew were doing in the early 20th century. And so I remember, you know, spending several wonderful hours, uh, fruitlessly, but wonderful nonetheless, searching for clues as to where these documentary films might be with Christian Moro and, um, and my colleague Pipo, um, who sadly passed on shortly after the, uh, after the book came out, um, like looking for these documentaries together, and we we never we never found them. But in the process, I uncovered lots of information about how the act of travel and the act of mobility for these filmmakers and for lots of other artists and philanthropists and intellectuals and political actors, it was really important to them. It was really important to their project that they move around. That they, in the case of the filmmakers, set up showings. Uh, of their documentaries, not just in major urban hubs, but in small towns, like small um, outposts that were oftentimes the railroad junctions or end of rail lines um, that, that again, made it clear that this interaction between the infrastructure of mobility and then the the way that mobility served these intellectual, political, artistic projects, that this all needed to be part of the same story. Um, in the case of Oriente Film, the, uh, the filmmakers, um, they, you know, they put together this, this documentary film about basically the, the Middle Eastern diaspora across the Americas and used that as a tool for um, for building support for their, their future endeavors. And I see it, you know, their, their story is unique. Like this was, there were not a ton of, you know, that I was able to ever find. There were not a ton of filmmakers running around doing this. So it's not so much like studying this group as emblematic of a much, you know, larger vocation that many people had, but more as starting to see emerging patterns about what the role of mobility was for artists and intellectuals and political actors, et cetera, and, and starting to see that reflected in a lot of different people's stories. So, of course, Oriente Film is one interesting story of one group that I cover in the in the book. But there's there's lots of other groups too, like poets and politicians and and writers and um, and comedians who uh, who all used the act of travel um, to forge a network of connection and support for for their projects, which not only built networks across Argentina and across the American hemisphere, but also transatlantic networks that connected them with, with the other side of the world. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, culture and art come up again in other chapters too. For example, uh, you deal with uh, the role of charitable organizations as well as a way of helping us uh, see how these, uh, these communities of, of Arab Argentines were created or maybe just helping us see how they 
exist in space. So maybe you could talk a bit about that as well, about the charitable organizations you look at uh, and the people who are involved in them, because there too, I saw a lot of these issues you've mentioned already coming to the fore. Yes. And, um, and again, I'll, I'll choose one example to talk about that, uh, that gives me a chance to talk a little bit about the research process. And that's the example of the Hospital Sirio-Libanes. And this is a hospital that is still operational today, located in Buenos Aires. And when I was doing research early on, this is before I had my Fulbright-Hayes uh, grant when I was doing the bulk of that graduate school era research, I had um, sought out this hospital just to see, you know, hey, do you have any archives? Do you have any dusty old boxes squirreled away in boardrooms? Um, because I think sometimes people who work outside of the field of history um, or even who work on, you know, historical studies, but of other eras in which archival research looks very different to them. Um, this this form of archival research is very, it's like piecemeal, finding little bits of things here and there and not finding them housed in traditional repositories of institutional knowledge or record keeping. Um, because going back to these 19th century kind of visions of what Argentina was, um, you know, safeguarding the the patrimony, safeguarding the cultural production and the newspapers, et cetera, et cetera, of this particular immigrant community was not seen as a, as a highly valued thing to engage in when we're talking about like the national archives and the national library. And so the places where we find really interesting information are just this. They're like in boxes in somebody's attic and squirreled away in boardrooms of uh, institution, local institutions. And so I was really interested to see, you know, might that be the case with the, with this hospital? And so I just contacted folks related to the hospital, related to their charitable organization that, that still exists in association with their hospital and asked, you know, can I come visit you and even just, just see the site of, um, of this institution that was important within this community, um, from, from early in the 20th century. And they were extremely kind and generous and open, invited me to the hospital, gave me the full tour of all of the medical facilities um, in, in depth and, uh, and then showed me, yes, those boxes full of old photographs and papers and things that they had in conjunction with their hospital. And so at the time, I didn't realize that what I was looking at was necessarily going to be another entry point into thinking about distance and travel and connectivity. Uh, I thought I was just sort of delving into the case study of a particular local institution in Buenos Aires. Um, but when I started to, to dive further into researching it, um, I realized uh, through, through looking at old newspapers published by the charitable organization related to that hospital. So, published by the, this group of, of women who had come together to vision how to create this hospital back in the early 20th century, um, that they, they collected donations from people all over the country to try to put down some you know, brick and mortar progress towards building this institution. And I had another opportunity to 
crunch a whole bunch of numbers, make, make another enormous spreadsheet, thousands of cells long, um, to, to try to envision, okay, so they're writing these lists of dozens and dozens and dozens, hundreds of donors down in the, this sort of newsletter that their organization is publishing. And well, now I can make lists of where these people lived and start to kind of crunch some demographic geographic data about where these donations were coming from. And what I saw right away, and then through crunching all of the numbers, you know, was able to formally render, uh, you know, visually through, through mapping was that the funds to build that hospital, even though it was a local hospital in Buenos Aires that served a local population those funds came from all over the country. And oftentimes they came from places where there was no way that people were ever going to travel from that place, far flung place in the in Patagonia region in the south or the northwestern region, high desert, um, you know, communities near the Bolivian border. Like there is literally no way that you would ever get on a train from La Quiaca to Buenos Aires, if you just want to, you know, get something checked out in a routine way, that would not make any sense. You would just go to a more local, you know, health professional to get your consultation, etc. cetera. Um, and, and in that moment of realizing that network of support that was able to build this local institution in Buenos Aires, some of the other things that I had found in my archival research about that institution started coming into better focus and making a little bit more sense. Like at one point I had found these advertisements that the hospital was running after it had opened its doors in 1937 that was offering medical services remotely. And they were offering analysis of uh, spit and urine and uh, blood and various other bodily products. They were offering that folks could send them in the mail to Buenos Aires to be analyzed in the labs at the hospital by their own doctors and medical staff. And that then the report on these samples, on you know the health implications drawn from these, uh, these test results would be sent back to people. I am not a historian of science. I'm not trained in medical anything, not that kind of doctor, right? But I, I'm, you know, I'm dubious as to like how, how uh, accurate is that information after this blood sample has sat on a train for several days in the elements and what have you, like I, what, what kind of useful medical conclusions were actually coming out of this and how much of this was symbolic as being a, a way of like reaching out to these far-flung places and far-flung populations to offer them something because those geographies had been so important in the actual coming together of the hospital from the beginning. And so uh, when we look at that, the history of that hospital and we see things that the organization of women who, who launched the campaign to build that hospital, they, they didn't just get involved in building the hospital. They were also involved in charitable campaigns that connected them with the Middle East, that connected them with disaster victims who they would send charitable aid to, uh, much in the way that many other uh, philanthropic and charitable organizations uh, that came out of this community would do would do these similar campaigns of, of mutual aid and support, um, but it really, you know, looking at looking at the hospital in particular was a launch point for me to start envisioning these institutions in in different ways as not just being products of local conditions serving local needs, but really 
being something so much more expansive than that. Huh. Well, that's interesting. I, can I ask a follow-up question, though, which is that you, in looking at charity and, uh, and charitable organizing, you also look at the way that uh, women played a role, um, uh, a particular role in the, uh, in the Arab Argentine community. Maybe you could expand on that a little bit, too. Yeah, I would love to. So one of the things that if that, that really stands out to me, if I'm thinking about the early, early research that I did towards this project when I was a graduate student and just trying to kind of scratch the surface and see what, you know, what has already been written about this community. A lot of times I would find examples of little historical vignettes or local histories written um, under the auspices of some heritage association like um, a, a mutual aid society who had you know, funded a study of Syrian and Lebanese immigrants in that particular town where it was located. Um, so all the way from that like micro local level up to these newspapers that had national circulation that were um, produced within this community, like the Diario Sirio Libanes or the Gazeta Arabe or Mundo Arabe or several others. Um, I would see this narrative repeated about how the Espíritu Emprendedor, this enterprising spirit, could really be credited for the um, success in financial integration, um, you know, community uh, like leadership projects or political success. That this this sort of vague notion of an enterprising spirit was really. Um, you know, the driving factor between people uh, having success with their business, political, artistic, et cetera, ventures in that community. And, but that, that's a term that's, it's vague. It doesn't mean anything. Like what, what is a enterprising spirit? And so the more I looked into when, when these articles were, were, were talking about the enterprising spirit, they really, what they're talking about are, how it's important men in the community who are making progress, right? And it was actually a way of hiding the way that other groups contributed to the formation of important networks of support, um, institutions and groups that facilitated uh, projects in terms of philanthropy, cultural, you know, linguistic preservation, um, educational projects, projects of mutual aid, that there was all of these other groups who really made made those gears turn that were not included in this narrow vision of the Espiritu Emprendedor being the sort of history of great men in the community. This is not something that we see that's unique to this, you know, to this historical case study that is, you know, my book and the general topic of Middle Eastern migration and the Americas, right? Um, but I was interested in, in, you know, going beyond that idea of the enterprising spirit, like who, who are the other groups that, that are really important? What kind of projects that they do? And just immersing myself in the newspapers, um, like the ones that I mentioned before, like Diario Sirio Libanes and Gazeta Arabe and many others, it became immediately clear how important the role was of these philanthropic mutual aid organizations and how they were not exclusively by any means, but predominantly run and managed by women in the community. And this, these are kinds of organizations um, 
that had, you know, were, were housed within religious organizations or were standalone mutual aid societies. These were not unique to this particular group. There were like versions of this in the Italian Argentine community, um, Spanish Argentine community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This was like a model of philanthropic organizing that often played an important role in um, the performance of respectability um, politics and assertion of um, uh, of pertinence to Argentine society at large and a way of um, like staking a claim in in the nation through uh, th- through doing these philanthropic projects. Like this is a pattern that we see elsewhere, not, not just in this community. But talking about it in relation to this particular community was something that was really important for me to illuminate the role that they played in, in these processes of connection and mobility uh, in, in, in terms of it widening our, our view of how these networks were formed regionally, locally, and then transnationally, and how it was a project of so many different social sectors of, um, of Arab Argentine society, um, including uh, centrally and very importantly, uh, women who, who worked for organizations and like the Hospital Sirio Libanes and many others. Huh. Well, and you mentioned international. That's the the last kind of area I'd like to have us talk about a little bit because after World War II, many states in the Middle East gained independence and experienced revolutions with you know charismatic military leaders, which I think brings to mind Argentina and Peron for many of us. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit about some of these things you discuss in the book about how. Argentina and Egypt, for example, related during this period and how the Arab Argentine community played a role in linking these two different uh, countries together transnationally. Uh, I'd, I'd be very interested to hear about that. Yeah. And one of the things that inspired me to start thinking about this was that the, even the term in and of itself of trans transnational, transnationalism becomes sticky when we're talking about the, this particular history, because as you said, there were all these um, shifts over the course of the 20th century in the the nation status of different geographies within this region. So after World War One, we see shifts, we see shifts again at intervals through the 20th century in terms of you know, political boundaries, the formation of new nations, etc. And so just trying to say that there's a transnational tie between say Argentina and Syria or Argentina and Lebanon is a term that sort of obscures the, the monumental shifts in, in borders and national and political identities. And, and I really started thinking about how the idea of transregional ties was important to revolutionizing the way that we were approaching um, Argentina and the, its foreign relations that came out of its deep history of mass migration, international mass migration. And, and I started thinking about, well, how these trans-regional ties give us the opportunity to not feel bounded 
in the types of connections that we talk about between Argentina and the Arabic speaking Eastern Mediterranean and how it opened the door to making it part of the story. When I would see a newspaper article about, um, you know, in the Gaceta Arabe or in Mundo Arabe about a project that involved um, politics or philanthropy or culture, art, that had to do with Egypt or another, you know, sort of broader Middle East, North Africa region, um, geographic uh, point. And it was, to me, it was feeling artificial to cut those, cut those histories out of the story because they weren't specifically um, the, 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 the smaller geographic region that the majority of people came from in predominantly Syria or Lebanon or Palestine, um, if we're thinking about contemporary contemporary geography. And so I started realizing, well, if we're thinking about the broader region and the, the way that histories of area studies um, have divided the, the, the world up into, into these regions and how that way of dividing the world up into regions is this product of this Cold War era, this Cold War moment, and what are, what are the legacies that it has left us with as scholars, as historians? Um, and, and I started thinking about how that was one of the main interventions that I wanted to make with my book was something that was going to muddy those waters of separation, something that was going to challenge that top-down area studies perspective that, that renders intellectual pursuits related to Latin America or the Middle East as separate endeavors. And so looking at, um, looking at Egypt just as like one case study in that larger project allowed me to talk about how it wasn't, it's not that generally speaking in studies of migrant populations and diaspora studies, it's not just that we need to be looking at this binary of, you know, homeland versus host country and what is the relationship that evolves over time, but it's also the geographies proximal to points of homeland origin. And in the case of Argentina and Egypt, we see people in, um, in the era of, of uh, Pre President Nasser and President Perón in 1950s Argentina and Egypt that was an opportunity for saying, look, the people who really cared about what was going on in Egypt and what was going on in Argentina and whether or not um, the, the leadership of Nasser might be a new opportunity in terms of um, Arab-Argentine relations, the people who really cared about that were not just Egyptians living in Argentina, right? There, there were a handful of those, but these were people who were from Beirut, people who came from various different cities in Syria, uh, who were really involved in this project of trying to bring together uh, intellectuals and politicians um, from Argentina and Egypt. And there was there was correspondence, too, at the highest levels of national leadership. I, I worked with um, a set of personal correspondence between uh, President Perón that he had sent to President Nasser towards the end of uh, his time, well, after the end of his time in office and when he was in exile. And so that was a really interesting um, experiment, right? Just like thinking outside of the box of first, I had covered 
the, the connectivity and the way that mobility played a role in these local and regional provincial networks um, that help us to better understand transnational relationships. Um, but then beyond this transnational idea, thinking about Egypt was a way of expanding it and saying, well, how can we think more broadly about the kinds of South-South dialogues and projects that um, that have shaped the history over the course of the 20th and the 21st century of this group and the places that that they reside and that they where they you know their circuits of mobility how are those parts of these broader transregional maps well so that's that's good because that brings me to the last thing I wanted to ask you which is that you talk you, you've already talked about some of these uh, South-South dialogues, if you will, that continue on today in terms of a, a cinema, for example, you've already talked about. But you also talked, uh, in your final chapter of your book, you also talk about some of the, the charitable work that's also continuing into the present day, especially in relation to uh, the Syrian civil war, for example. So I'm wondering if how, how you see some of the themes that you talked about in the past still being visible to us in the present day. Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the one of the major backdrops to the, you know, if I'm thinking about my own history and involvement in this project, that my own historical trajectory and the different contexts in which I conducted the research, the Syrian civil war was going on at the time that I was doing my field research for this book. When I graduated from uh, from my doctoral program, that following summer in 2015, we saw this profusion of folks um, trying to cross the Mediterranean on boats and the media rendering this as a quote, Mediterranean migration crisis. And so the, the, the narrative of um, crisis was so deeply intertwined with descriptions of mobility that, um, that this was like, this was the elephant in the room when I was talking to um, folks in Argentina who were uh, who were responsible for for the different you know institutions and, and organizations that held these archival collections that I was looking to work with. So this was, you know, this was a a, a real time backdrop of what was going on uh, with the Syrian civil war that was weighing on the kinds of interactions that I was having um, in 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 the research process. Um, and I start I start my book, uh, the first chapter with an anecdote about how, um, how in 2015, in in that, that summer, there was a letter that got written by various prominent individuals from the Syrian Lebanese uh, community, including various institutional leaders um, that wrote to the then president of Argentina to say, we should be bringing Syrian refugees, refugees, to Argentina for humanitarian reasons, um, and also because we have historical ties with the, with those geographies, um, we should be bringing them here. And hey, by the way, wouldn't it be a great opportunity to have them settle unpopulated parts of this country like Patagonia, right? And so that part about like settling unpopulated regions and oh, by the way, maybe they could go to Patagonia, like that was more of an aside and in this whole correspondence, but it was, I zeroed in on it right away. And I was like, how interesting of Amir is this? I like, we've come, I've come full circle 
from thinking about these 19th century nation building projects, intellectuals like Sarmiento and Alberti and thinking about, um, you know, internal colonization projects and, and who that would be and how interesting to see it like mirrored and yet inverted in this, this interesting way all of these years later by 2015 in which we're talking about a group of migrants that was not seen as ideal back then, but thinking about processes of, um, you know, sort of filling quote unquote interior space by processes of mass migration that were like still coming up in 2015 in this discussion about um, the Syrian refugee crisis as they were rendering it. Um, And I saw it, you know, the, the process of, um, modern day forced migration, displacement, um, th- these are all moments for rearticulations of, of people's relationships um, towards and positionalities regarding um, these, these dual geographies that, that are formative in people's places of enunciation, their understandings of who they are and who their community are. Um, and we see um, everything from concrete uh, concrete policies regarding Argentina's relationship to Syrian refugees, and at that at that moment, and starting in the twenty you know twenty teens, um, and all the way down to you know just that individual levels, people reflecting on um, you know what well falling on different different political sides and opinions about what was going on. You know, there was there was no baseline like consensus about what the Syrian civil war meant and represented and the actors involved. Um, but people also just reflecting on, you know, how contemporary processes of migration displacement were bringing them into uh, a place of thinking about their own relationship towards Syria, for example. Um, or, or the, the broader Middle East region. And so that, you know, it was, it, it never, it never was in too far from, from my experience doing the research was thinking about these, you know, contemporary processes. Um, and, and including towards the end of the, um, the research for the book, I started working even more closely with my colleagues from, um, from the Latin Arab Cine Fertil, um, or uh, organization, the um, who, these folks who put together these film festivals, and we're working really closely with my, with my colleague um, Edgardo Bechara Alhuri, people, you know, and talking about um, in the 21st century experiences, histories of mass migration and displacement, the role that they have played in um, in these international projects of of bridge building, like his organization was was trying to do and building you know, cultural bridges and intellectual bridges. Um, and I, um, you know, I felt like that was really important to include in my book as well. It's really can be easy as historians to just sort of wall ourselves off and say, I'm talking about this moment in the past. And it's the elephant in the room that these other things were going on in the present at the time that I was writing it. Um, but I felt like in the case of this, this book, I really, I, I, I couldn't do that. There could be no walling off. And so um, that's why I, I tried to really intentionally bring um, that, that contemporary m- moment, that contemporary context in uh, like in full frontal, bring it in to the book um, in, the, in the final chapters. Well, I mean, it makes for a, 
fascinating conclusion to a book that I really enjoyed overall too. And um, I feel like we have only scratched the surface of some of the details and anecdotes and information that's contained in it. So on the one hand, I hope people listening to this will go out and find the book and read it because I think they'll enjoy it and have a lot to learn from it. Um, but on the other hand, I'm as a final question, I'm just curious to you, what are you working on now? And now that this book is done, it's out, what have you turned your attention to? Well, I have a couple of projects going, one which seems like a logical leap from this project, which is I'm, I'm working on an article related to histories of Middle Eastern migration and business in the Caribbean basin. So looking at a similar historical period of late 19th into the 20th century, but kind of shifting to a geographic margin of, of the map of that overall diaspora, the Caribbean basin. So Central America and Northern coast of South America and various um, Caribbean geographies and using my experience and expertise that came from writing the book to uh, apply and ask questions about a different geography within the hemisphere. And I'm, I'm, originally thought maybe that would be a much bigger project. I'm sort of relegating it more to an article now and and perhaps a future point of departure for research. But the thing I'm pouring most of my energy into right now would be on its surface, completely unrelated to what I wrote this last book on. Um, But I actually feel like is a project that it was this really natural culmination of the different kinds of experiences that I had in transforming my own thinking about um, space place and and history. So I'm currently working on a book called American Venom, and it is a study of venomous snakes in the Americas and the different kinds of geographic historical mobilities and connectivities that they represent. And so um, I was originally doing some archival research towards this, this other uh, project about Middle Eastern migration in the Caribbean basin, but came across a whole collection of photos from the 1920s of venomous snakes. And these photos were part of an archive of, of materials related to the United Fruit Company, now Chiquita, um, that was one of the first major case studies in multinational corporations arising out of the, the growth of U.S. international uh, capitalist ventures. And so this was like a banana company that um, that had its tentacles and everything from politics to infrastructure, uh, to agro industry, to migration policy um, in the Caribbean basin, primarily. And I was completely confused why doing research on this corporation, why did I find a bunch of file folders full of pictures of like rattlesnakes and vipers and various other kinds of snakes? What, what were they doing there? And the materials themselves weren't labeled with any explanations. So I got into researching that and just went on a deep dive of, out of curiosity, what were these snakes doing in this archive? Um, And the answer is that they were part of the tropical research wing of this organization, of this corporation, um, and that there was these attempts to come up with an antivenom. You know, medicine, if you get bitten by a venomous snake, is called antivenom or antivenin. And... Uh, the United Fruit Company had a vested interest in figuring out a cure for snake bites because who's getting bitten by snakes? Well, people picking bananas from banana plants where 
uh, extremely venomous snakes like to hang out because that's a great environment for them. And so this just started me on this. It was just like the first domino falling. I just fell in love with the possibilities that I saw in a project that placed animals at the center because animals don't care about political boundaries. Animals don't care about eras of politics <laughs> or other kind of frameworks that we've heretofore depended on to understand histories of international relations, hemispheric histories to date. And so I've been embarking on this project for the last couple of years in which, you know, I'm still doing my old thing in a lot of ways. I'm still using the tools of mapping and critical geography and archival research to think about hemispheric and global connection, but I'm trying to take it a step further and say, how can we push those narratives of connectivity and linkages across the hemisphere? How can we push those to a new level if we really center animals and the environment in our, um, in our understandings of those, those connections? And I think that it's the perfect way to do a project that highlights those connections because it gives us opportunities to think about all different, I think of them as kind of buckets of history, right? Different subfields, different buckets like public health, medical history, um, science and technology, uh, natural history, environmental history, labor history, migration history. All of these things come together in the story of venomous snakes in the Americas. Um, and I could go on at length about it, but that's not what this interview is about. But it's all to say that I've in some ways taken a major departure topically and geographically from you know, what I worked on for the book. But in other ways, the book was this research and writing process that for me changed the way that I think about space and place. And now I'm just applying that to the next interesting set of questions that have occurred to me. Well, I mean, it sounds fascinating. And I mean, sure, it sounds different than Middle Eastern history. But I think it, to me, it suggests what's good about this book, too, which is that there's a real eye, you have for interesting details and interesting relationships. So I mean, that's why I enjoyed this book. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to this next one as well. It sounds great. Um, yeah, well, thank thank you very much for your time and uh, being on the podcast. It's much appreciated, Professor. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk with you.